Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for another day. We thank you for a Sunday. We love Sundays. We're eager to hear you speak to us now through the Word. Thank you for great songs. Thank you for songs, God, that have brought our heart to the place where we are ready. And now as we go back to 1 Peter, Lord, we ask that you would teach us. Help us put all in perspective and help us to know what one might live like when they have perspective. We ask for your help today as you speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, turn in the Bible to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can use the Black Pew Bible there in front of you, and it is page 1116. 1116. Micah, great job with the music today. As always, I, I love those old songs. Uh, they are perfectly fine with me. Holy, holy, holy is my favorite song of all time. Um, and Be Thou My Vision is also one of the best. Uh, I love those songs. Micah, thank you very much for that. We're back at 1 Peter today. 1 Peter chapter 4. And I mentioned to you last week that I, I, I wanted to maybe go verses 1 through 11, but um, I preached too long last week anyway, uh, cutting it in half. And so that was a good call. And today we're going to go verses 7 through 11 of 1 Peter chapter 4. Again, if you're using a pew Bible, one of those black Bibles there in front of you, it's page 1116. And this passage here, verse 7, begins by saying the end of all things is at hand. And what Peter is doing is wanting us to see that we are at the end. He's wanting them to see that we're at the end. And there is uh, meaning to this. When you are able to have the end in mind, when you are able to see the big picture, or able to keep perspective, you're able to focus. Meaningless things don't seem as important. And this is what Peter's wanting us to do. We just came out of graduation season. Many of you in the last couple weeks have attended a graduation. Many of you have attended several graduations. And graduations are neat. I, I wrote a blog post on the church website about this for reflections from graduation and and there's something about coming to the end of a school year and, and even more so coming to an end of an academic career because you go K through 12. When you graduate high school, you're at, the, you're at the end. And there's something about being able to say, you know, this is it. I'll never go to that school again as a student. I'll never see those teachers again as a student. I'll never see that principle again. I'll never do this. This is, this is the end. And it's, it's neat how being in that spot totally shifts the way you think about what you were just involved with. See, just months ago or years ago, it was, man, that teacher's against me. And she's just trying to ruin our lives. It's boring. We don't do anything here. Why do I even come? There's no sense in studying. We say things like that or we think that way or we think our school's terrible or we, we think like that. But then you get to graduation because you're at the end and now you're thinking big picture and you're like, they weren't that bad after all. I'm proud of my school. You know, that probably was more, more me than the teachers actually. She's got hundreds of students every year, year after year after year after year. I doubt she's picked me out to be against. And when you get to the end, it, it puts things in perspective. 
Well, the Bible alarms us and warns us throughout to know what the end is like. To be ready for the end, prepared for the end, and then live now like we know the end is near. If you can't live like you know the end is near, then I would dare say that you're not able to live focused on God. The now, the circumstances, the desires of the world, which the Bible warns us against, way too heavy against you. You're not able to focus on the big picture. Our passage today, as I've titled in your bulletin, is Keeping Perspective, the End of All Things is at Hand, which is what it says at the very beginning. I want to ask you today, over the next few minutes, are you living now like you know the end is near? The end of the world. The coming back of Jesus. The judgment. Are you living now? Or if that was to happen, and, 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 and I, don't, I don't want to talk about it too much, but there's, there's two different ways you can meet God. He could come back today, or you could die today. Okay, two different ways. It's not just, well, I don't really think he's coming back today. He may, but I don't know. But that's not the only option. You could die today. And if either of those were to happen, would you be okay with how you've been? Would you be okay with your thoughts today? Would you be okay with your actions today? Would you be okay with your investments today? And I don't just mean financially. The places you're investing in, the works that you're investing in, the lives, the people that you're investing in. If Jesus comes back today or you meet Him because you've passed away, would you be happy? This is what Peter wants to bring about. Now it's fitting that Peter says this because these people, as we've talked about now week after week, have been dealing with persecution and hardship. Their lives have been hard. And so, and when you go through trials, what is a temptation of the devil is to get you to start thinking more about you and less about God. You start saying things like, well, I deserve to. Right? I need this. Or I need to look out for me sometimes. And next thing you know, we get a little me-centered. And we start thinking, well, there's reason for me to abandon this big picture perspective, get a real little perspective and just think about me. Let's just think about Josh. And they have reason to kind of get into that if you're looking from a, a personal, worldly perspective. They have reason to start thinking, man, can, can, we, can we not just do something for us for once? See, Peter knows that life's been hard for them. Peter knows they've been through trials. Peter knows that they're facing persecution. That's why he's writing to them. And here we're now toward the end of the book. And at verse 7 he says, the end of all things is at hand. Read with me, if you will, at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory 
and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is a good passage. This is a good summary passage. This is a good passage to help us put our lives in perspective, and I hope you will. I want to walk through the passage at verse 7, and I want us to see uh, just the four emphases that come out, of here, uh, come out of this passage. With the end being at hand, he suggests four things. Now, why would he say that the end is at hand? Because this was written about 2,000 years ago, and so he was either off by 2,000 years or more, or he has some other idea of what he means by the end. And here's what I mean. The Bible seems to say, and the New Testament emphasizes, that ever since we have the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, once Christ ascended back up into heaven, we are in the end times. The Bible doesn't tell us that there's anything else that's going to happen. There are no more prophecies that need to be, to be fulfilled. We are, we are there. We are in the end. The only thing that we're waiting on now is for Jesus to return, end everything, and judge the world. That's it. Now, some people would laugh and say, well, it's been 2,000 years. He's not going to do it. Why is he waiting so long? It's because it's not real. Some people would say that. But if you know him, you know why he tarries. You know why he waits. Do you know how many people are lost right now without Christ? Do you know how many people that if he comes back right now, it would not be good for them? Do you know how many people are not ready for him to come back? We're at the end, but in so many ways, we're thankful that the end is long. We want everybody to be saved. There's a song out there that, you know, Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount that those that will be saved is few. Few are called, it says. And there's a song out there that says, May the few be many, Lord. Isn't that a good thought? May the few be many, Lord. That idea is because we're in the end now. We're at the end. There's not four more things that have to happen, and so therefore the end of Jesus, the end of the world, and Jesus returning is not going to happen because we still need to see this happen and this happen. We're not there. That's not true. The only thing that needs to happen is Christ's return. We're at the end. Because any day now, earth could be over, you and I ought to live a certain way. Let me say that again. Because any day now, the earth could be over, you and I ought to live a certain way. And this is what Peter is digging in on. The first, number one, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. These things kind of go hand in hand. They're not exactly the same thing as you know, but they are pretty much the same thing. They're very similar. Self-controlled. In other words, don't be out of control. Don't be somebody who's out of control. Don't have areas. Don't have pockets of your life. Don't let your eating be out of control. Don't be your TV watching be out of control. Don't be your laziness be out of control. Don't let your spending be out of control. Don't let your love for things that are passing away be out of control. We need to be self-controlled. In the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, the very last one is self-control. You know that. Self-control is a characteristic, is a fruit that hangs off the tree of people who have the Spirit. People who have been born again, people who have Jesus, people who are saved have fruit about them. Their lives are a certain way. If you don't have that fruit, you need to get Jesus. You need to be saved. You need to come to Christ. One of those fruits 
One of those characteristics of God's children is self-control. Peter reminds us here, since we have the end in mind, live self-controlled. But then he also says, sober-minded. I love this. Our passage last week brought up drunkenness, and I talked about that a little bit. And I, I told you a big stance that our church has on this that is actually new to our church, but is helpful, I believe. It's provided lots of opportunity for me to explain. You ought to have much caution, much caution in your life with alcohol. Beware of strong drink. You ought to not want to get anywhere even close to buzzing or tipsy or drunk or anything at all. Because with the end in mind, you want to be sober-minded. You want to be as sharp as you can possibly be. Had somebody show up here this morning that I love, real close to him, and he's tired, he's had a long night, he was busy, all that kind of stuff. And one of the things I said to him is, man, you're not ready to change the world. You've got to get here on a Sunday ready to be sharp. You want to make a difference in somebody's life. You want to be sober-minded. You want to have clear, focused, attentive life. Because the end is near. Or actually, the end is here. Therefore, be self-controlled. Therefore, be sober-minded. In other words, be focused. Be attentive to what life's about. Live to the fullest. Be all in, you might say. Keep your eyes on Christ. Don't be caught off guard. Set your mind on the things that are above. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Focus. Put your hand to the plow and don't look back. The end is here, he says. But then he says, and this is fascinating, do it for the sake of your prayers. You have that in verse 7. For the sake of your prayers? You mean my prayers are dependent upon how I am? Yes, and this is not new to us in Peter. If you'll look back to chapter 3, verse 7. Look back to chapter 3, verse 7. I preached on this several weeks ago. When Peter is addressing husbands, he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And this rocked to me when I got to that several weeks ago. Every one of us have felt like, well, I've been praying about that, but God doesn't seem to be hearing, or God's not listening, or God's not answering. Why not? And it could just be because God doesn't want to answer that one. Your timing's a little bit off. It could be that God's saying no to you, and that is good for you. God has a plan. That's an option. But it also could be something to do with us. It could be that the reason why God's not answering our prayers is because our lives are out of control. We're not sober-minded. We are distracted. Our priorities are not in order. We don't have perspective. Perhaps our TV watching and our eating and our spending and the things that we love, the things that we delight in, our laziness, our discipline, perhaps those things are not under the Spirit's control. Perhaps there are areas of our life, pockets of our life, that are not under the Spirit's control. And the Bible seems to be teaching in 1 Peter 3, 7 and 4, 7 that if those things are not under the Spirit's control, then our prayers are going to be hindered. Why would we pray to God and ask Him to answer us if we're not living the way God has told us to live? In obedience, in submission, surrender, by His power, through His strength. Therefore, since the end is at hand, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Could it be that, that our focus on God... Or our lack of focus on God is the reason why He's not answering our prayers? 
Peter warns us, the end is at hand. Let's focus in. Let's be self-controlled by the power of the Spirit. Let's dig in. Let's be sober-minded. Let's, let's live like we are focused and we know what we're wanting to be about so that we are walking with God and that He hears our prayers. That's number one. Number two, moving on to verse 8. Love one another. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Above all, you know what that means. It means that, you know, the end is at hand. Here's my to-do list. I've got these things to do. But above all, do this one. You ever made a to-do list? Tomorrow's Monday. There's a lot going on. You've got to be here by 6 o'clock tomorrow night because we have VBS for all the kids. It's going to be our best VBS in a long time. I hope you're ready for that. So you've got a lot to do tomorrow. and you don't, You're not going to be able to get it done in the evenings. You're going to be here from 6 to 9 tomorrow. So you're going to make a to-do list tomorrow. But then you realize halfway through the day that you're not going to be able to get all eight things on your to-do list done. So then you re-look at your to-do list and you evaluate which one's most important. Above all else, I need to do this one. Peter looks at the end. He realizes that just the life we live with people who struggle and we're prideful and we get rubbed the wrong way and where people are irritable, we realize that it's not always easiest to just love people. So he says, above all, make sure we love each other. Now the Bible places great emphasis, and even Peter has placed great emphasis on loving outsiders. This book talks a lot about how we treat outsiders. Last week's sermon talked about how we treat outsiders, people that don't know Jesus. But here, his specific focus with the end in mind is that we would love one another. This is the beginning of him mentioning one another three times. Love one another. Keep loving one another. Keep loving one another earnestly. Be devoted to one another. Loving one another. I want to ask you, do you? Can you look around the room right now and see people that you love? Do you have people sitting in here that they're not your best friends? You don't really know them. You've never been to dinner with them, but you love them. You want to make sure that in their struggle they're built up. You want to make sure that they've been encouraged because, yeah, this following Christ is a struggle. Do you feel loved? Have you given love? Above all, this is what we're supposed to be doing. You know, the, I like to point out that people think the Bible's hard to read and confusing, but in passages like this, this is pretty simple. What Now that the end is in hand, Peter, what do you think is most important? Okay, I'll tell you, above all, make sure you love each other. And do it earnestly. And then he tells us why. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. I preached on this just a couple Wednesday nights ago for the very purpose of it having more of an emphasis now. We go through a lot of diapers at our house. Same illustration to help y'all get it. Go through a lot of diapers at our house and the other day Val was in the living room and she said, Josh, I need a diaper. I need a diaper. And I said, okay, let me get you one. And I run back there and there wasn't a diaper where I thought the diapers were. So I run back and all the while she needs a diaper. So I run back and I'm like, I don't see any. She said, there's one on the bed. So I run back there and I look on the bed and I don't see it. And so I run back and say, I don't see it. And all the while she's needing a new diaper. And um, so she says, well, it's on the bed. And so I run back there again, third time. Val, I don't see it. I'm looking on the bed. I don't see the diaper. I go back and, and, and she says, it's there. It's underneath the blanket. And so I run back there, lift up the blanket, and there's the diaper. I didn't see it. She says, you're the worst at looking for things. You can't find anything. 
It was covered up. How was I supposed to see it if it was covered up? You know what the world loves to say about people like me? The world loves it when, when I sin. Or when I'm prideful. Or short with somebody. Or rude. Or when I'm judgmental. Or when I'm arrogant. Or when I'm conceited. Or when I'm a bad husband or a bad wife. Or when I spend money wrongly. The world loves that. And they love to see that in me or, or in y'all too and say, you can't really be a Christian. God hadn't really changed you. You know what keeps the world from seeing so much of our sins? Love covers it up. This is why we love each other. Because love covers up sins. Love covers up sins. You can't see them. I want to ask your family if it's like my family and there's some issues. Does your family ever have drama? Are family reunions or Christmas time a little bit hectic and slash hilarious because there's people with problems like all of us and it's just as good sometimes to not get together than it is to get together because get togethers are so hard you ever had to get together like a birthday or family reunion or Christmas and somebody calls and said I ain't coming if he's gonna be there I ain't coming that ever happened in y'all's family because it happens in our family it happens all the time okay but have you ever seen it with all the issues keep happening? You ever had somebody in your family show up and you still hugged them and said, man, I'm glad you're here. How you doing? How are the kids? And how can I help? Hey, by the way, I was at such and such this year and I thought of y'all and I got you something. And they've still got all their issues, but you loved them. Does anybody still have their family intact despite all the issues? Has anybody got a family that's full of sin? That's all of us. And yet love keeps it together. Folks, that is what a church is. If you're looking for a church that has no problems, then you haven't found the right one. But if you're looking for a church that has problems, but understands that God says love can cover up our problems and keep loving, then I hope and pray that you found the right one. Hey, all churches have problems. You don't go looking for a church that doesn't have problems. You go looking for a church that has love that covers up so many of the problems. Let me say that again. All churches have problems. They have people that sin, like me and like you. You're not looking for a church that doesn't have problems. You're looking for a church that has love that covers up the problems. And this is what Peter says is above all. Above all. Keep loving one another. I love to point out that there are times recently where I've hurt you. There are times recently where I've said the wrong thing. Or I've been poor in how I should have been. There's times recently where we've done that to each other. There's probably been times where I've said something I shouldn't have said. There's times where you've said something you shouldn't have said. I'm sure there's been times in your household where you've talked down about me. The Bible says that even in those situations, we are to keep loving each other because love covers a multitude of sins. If we want this place, listen, to crash and burn and to not exist and to just be a dying church and give it a few years and it'll be nothing left, we don't need to go and start doing bad things. We all sin. 
We need to stop loving each other. Notice that the problem with the dying church is not that there's sinners there. The problem with the dying church is that the sinners there stopped loving each other. Love covers it up. Hey, there's not anybody out there thinking, well, I've got my life together, and let me see if there's any churches that have their lives together, because I'll fit in just right there. I don't think you know anybody who's thinking that way. But there are people out there who think, man, I've got all kinds of issues and struggles and sins. And where could I possibly go? The answer is to a people who know how to love people like that. Above all, love one another earnestly. Everybody notice the word earnestly there? You can't do that easily. You can't do that simply. You can't do that casually or occasionally. You can't do that coasting through life. It must be earnest. It must be, this is hard. It must be, this is going to take some strength. It must be, I've been on my knees for this situation. It must be, I need the help of God. It must be, they're not very lovable, but I love them. Love them earnestly. Love one another earnestly. I want to ask you, if you will, to open up the hymnal there. It's the gray book in front of you. Turn to the very back, the very front cover. Don't even turn a page, just open up the cover. Does everybody see the church covenant there? There should be a sticker on the front cover of the church covenant. Does everybody have it? This is our church covenant. We, I don't want anybody to join our church if they haven't understood that this is what we're about. I don't want to hold you to expectations that you're not aware of. That'd be unfair. Read the top paragraph. It says, A gathered church of believers in Jesus Christ, or as a gathered church of believers in Jesus Christ in Fairdale, Kentucky, we covenant together in the bonds of love to walk as the family of God in the following ways. We believe that we are committed to one another. We are a family of God. And we are in the bonds of love. Now jump down to number six. There's only eight points in our church covenant. It's a short and simple church covenant. But look at number six. This is what is expected of everybody who wants to belong to our church. We will seek by the Holy Spirit to love one another sincerely while maintaining the unity and peace of the church. Along with that, we will abstain from gossip, backbiting, and other sins that cause division within the church. We really, really, really don't want division. We really, really do want unity. Well, sometimes we do things that cause division. You know what keeps it from dividing? Love. Loving one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's a good feeling to know that somebody's love has covered up your sins. And it's a good thing when your love is covering up somebody else's sins. I don't mean hiding them and not dealing with them. I mean just not making it a bigger deal than it needs to be. Number one, self-controlled and sober mind. Number two, love one another. Number three, verse, 10, verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Here's the second time he said one another. The first is love one another. The second is to show hospitality to one another. Show hospitality. That's a good word. 
At the basketball tournament up here at the high school, the King of the Bluegrass, there is a hospitality room. There's a room that coaches and media and, and referees and officials can go to, and, and they can go in there, and they're just going to be served. There's food there. There's drinks there. There's all types of tables. It's nice. People love going into the hospitality room. They don't have to pay. They don't have to do anything. They just show up, and people are there to give them good foods and good drinks and take care of them and serve them. It's easy. It's air-conditioned. It's nice. Nobody interrupts them. It's whatever. They go in there. They receive warm hospitality. When they're finished, they can leave and go back out to watch a basketball. The Bible tells us to show that to one another, hospitality. I want to ask you if you've ever thought that part of what it means to be a church is to show hospitality to one another. Do you know anybody right now who needs some? Do you know anybody right now that your life could help their life be a little easier? Do you know anybody right now that your life could make their life a little bit more uncomfortable? A little bit more comfortable? Do you know anybody right now that your life could make them encouraged or strengthened? That's what we do. We show hospitality to one another. During this time that Peter's writing with all the persecution and people not having much wealth or possessions, Life was a struggle. And it was hard enough just to take care of yourselves. It was such a mark of a Christian to show hospitality to somebody else. Yesterday in the neighborhood, there were two guys coming by. I don't know if they came to y'all's house yesterday, selling books. I don't think they were going house to house, so I don't know why they came to my house. But I don't know. Well, they came and they asked, could we talk? And it wasn't a good time, but I said, I'm interested. And uh, so they came back a little bit later, and Val wasn't there, so it was just me and all five kids, and I've talked to y'all what our house is like when it's me and all five kids. But I told them to come back, and they were selling some books on education, uh, so I let them in. Two men, two young men. Turns out both are for Europe, from Europe, and we got to talk, and they wanted me to buy some books. They asked me if our family was religious. What they were doing wasn't anything to do with religion, but they asked me if we were religious. Now, I didn't tell them how religious we were, that I'm a pastor. I just answered, yeah, pretty much so. We asked them if they were Christians. One of them said, I, I think I am, my mom is. The other said, uh, I'm not sure. So our boys went to town serving them. Eli went and got them each a nice drink of water. They were showing them some stuff in our house. We just let them stay in our house for a good 15 minutes. Let them sit down. Gave them some water. We were able to talk to them. Have a good conversation. We talked to them about what languages they know. We talked to them about how much we love traveling the world if we, if we ever got to. We talked to them about some things that we had in common. I wanted so badly to show them hospitality. I wanted so badly for them to think, these people are nice. These people are kind. These people are not a burden. I, I, I like these people. I was able to tell them that, and it's neat because they're not from Fairdale or the Bible Belt where they know everything they need to know about Christianity and they're still saying, I'm not sure. They're saying they're not sure because they're really not sure. And so as they were leaving, we were out in the yard and I was telling them bye and how you know, great, great of guys they were and pleasure to meet them from their country and all that. Hope they like our country. And I said, 
I want you guys to become Christians. Jesus is God. And He's Lord. He died on the cross for our sins and there's no way that anybody can be forgiven of their sins without Him. I want you guys to think about that. And then they went off. I tell you all that story because I want you to see that I think the hospitality has an influence on what was spoken. Wouldn't you agree? What if I had slammed the door and said, get out of here, you don't speak English. What if I had said, no, I'm scared of you all. I think hospitality meant something there. Peter includes here in this passage that the way we show hospitality to one another is important. And he even says how we ought to do it without grumbling. A lot of us are good at doing good things or the right things, but we grumble all the way through it. Attitude is everything when it comes to doing good things, isn't it? We want to be a church that shows hospitality to one another. We want to be a church that is looking for ways that we might help somebody, love somebody, and build them up. Number one, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Number two, love one another. Number three, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And then lastly, number four, verse 10, serve one another. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. That's the third time he said one another. We ought to love one another, be, show hospitality to one another, and serve one another. I want to pause there for a second. You know, there's a lot of conversation that happens in the world about, do you have to go to church to be a Christian? Well, that's kind of like a trick question. Kind of a trick question. Because to be a Christian, you have to believe in Jesus wholeheartedly. You have to turn from your sins and trust in Christ. And what it means to trust in Christ is to trust Christ at His Word. He says that very clearly. You have to take Christ at His Word. Well, taking Christ at His Word says a whole lot about what we then live like. And so much of that includes how we treat the church. The church that we're a part of. The church that we belong to. I would say today that if you don't have a church that you're involved with, that you're a part of, that you belong to, how are you going to love one another? He's not talking about outsiders. He's talking about people in your church. How are you going to show hospitality to them? He's not talking about outsiders. He's not talking about your neighbor. He's talking about people in your church. How are you going to serve them in the manner in which He's talking about serving them if you don't have a church? The one another is talking about the people in your church. Other Christians. And He says it three times. I would encourage you to plug into church. Get involved. Learn to, to, to love one another and let one another love you. Learn to show hospitality to one another and let one another show hospitality to you. Learn to serve one another and let one another serve you. But in the serving of one another, He qualifies it. He gives two different types of serving. And this would be the breakdown of how all the gifts go. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. And what Peter has in mind here is that everybody has a gift. When God saves somebody, He fills them with His Holy Spirit. He comes to leave inside of them. He doesn't leave them. The Holy Spirit's there. And that Holy Spirit brings gifts. Gifting brings gifts. Everybody has some gift if they have the Spirit. Here, they're in two categories. Speaking and serving. He says, if you speak... Using your gift of speaking, serving one another, do it as one who speaks the oracles of God. 
Many of you all have this. You're able to speak to somebody to serve them speaking the truth of God. Many of you are really good at saying, well, here's what the Bible says. Many of you are really, really good at saying, man, I've got, I got a good verse for you today. Many of you are really good at saying, hey, I know you're going through it. Let me share this verse with you. Many of you are. It's awesome. It's thoughtful. It is using your gift of speaking the Word of God to people. You are serving people when you do this. We need that. We need that. The other one he talks about is serving. And he says that when you're going to serve one another, do it in this manner, as one who serves by the strength that God has supplied. In other words, what he's saying is, we ought not to try to serve people speaking out of our own wisdom. Don't come up with your own best phrase and hope that helps somebody continue in Christ. Give them the Word of God. Give them truth. Give them something that God has said. Or if you're going to serve somebody, don't serve them out of your own strength, under your own power, with your own attitudes, with your own muscles. Serve them by the strength that God supplies. This is what it means to be a church. A church is not a group of people that have gathered together. It's a group of people that have gathered together by the Spirit's power. So that everything about us, the loving one another, serving one another, hospitality to one another, the speaking to one another, or the serving one another, comes through what God is doing in us. We want to keep that perspective. When you want to join our church, we ask you to go through a new members class. It meets four times. It's real simple. It goes over things like that church covenant that we just read. And when you get to the end of it, you get a paper there that says, here's the ways that I want to be involved. And you check off boxes so that we can help you be involved there. And at the bottom section, it's got a list of just all of these ways you can get involved. Nursery, kitchen, parking lot, praying, speaking, evangelism, sports, tech, media, music, just a whole big list. Here's what we're wanting. We're wanting you to say, here's the ways I think God has gifted me to be involved. Here are the ways I think God has made me to be able to be involved, to help the church, serve the church. We want to help you do that. We want to plug you in there. Peter's third thing is, the third one another is, use what God has made you, what God has given you to serve one another. Three one another's. And then after that, he says this. In order that, okay, in order that means here's what our goal is. We're doing all that so that we can get this. In order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here's what Peter's saying. The end is here. We know that we must at the end live with this perspective. That in everything God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. And so then he gives us the steps or the ways or the methods that we live so that with the end in perspective, God gets all the glory. Have you ever set a goal? Have you ever set a goal that by the end of summer you want to read a certain amount of books? Have you ever set a goal that by the end of summer you want to be able to do 50 push-ups? Have you ever set a goal that you've wanted to achieve? When you set a goal, you have to put steps in place to be able to get there, right? If you're trying to save up $1,000, set a goal and then make some steps to get there. Well, our goal is simple in Christianity, we know that. 
Our goal is the glory of God. Our goal are hearts and minds and souls and bodies that treasure Him, that love Him, that have our affections on Him, that think about Him, that delight in Him. Our goal is the glory of God. But how are we going to do that? We do that by putting the end in perspective. We do that by being reminded, man, I could die tomorrow. If I die tomorrow, what are my kids going to think? If I die tomorrow, where am I going to go? If Jesus comes back tomorrow, how's my wife going to be? If Jesus comes back tomorrow, how are you going to be? If I die tomorrow, how are you going to be? Would you love Jesus more or would you love Him less? Fathers, are your family going to love God more or love God less if you die? This is what it means to live with the end in perspective. Back in my home church in North Carolina where I came from, there was a man that was such a blessing to me. He was an older guy and he had just recently retired and he was somewhere in his 60s, I think. And, and, and I was just encouraged by him. He, he wasn't anything super, but he loved the Lord and he, he, he was involved in church. And when there was something going on, he was there and he encouraged me. And he was excited to see a, a young man like myself that was, that was growing in the Lord. And he was always really good to me. One day I got to talking to him about his life. And he said this phrase that I've always remembered. In regards to living for Jesus, he said, Josh, I wish I had known then what I know now. In regards to living for Jesus, Josh, he lived for Jesus in his 60s. He said, but I wish I had known then what I know now. Here's what he meant. Life's about God. Life's about Jesus. And in his 60s, he had come to realize that. But he had wished he had realized it in his 20s, or when he was in college, or in his 30s, or when he was raising his kids. You know what helps you and I realize it right now? Peter reminds us that the end is here. We are at the end. Let's get our lives right. Let's focus on Jesus. Let's love people. Not things. Let's invest in people, not stuff. The end is here. Let's keep perspective. Let's live for God with the little bit of time that we've got left. And let's watch many, many people be drawn to that and come to Christ and have their lives changed. The great Martin Luther from the 1500s, the leader of the Reformation, was once asked, Martin Luther... If you knew that today would be the end of the world and that it would come today, what would you do? Martin Luther, in his classic way, said, I would plant a tree and pay my taxes. Here's what he meant. The Bible teaches us to live every day in light of the end. You and I don't get crazy and say, oh, I might die tomorrow. Let me go sell the farm. You and I don't get crazy and go YOLO. You only live once and go skydiving tomorrow with all of our money. We live for God. Because He's the one that gets the glory. And that's what we want. All we want out of life, if we believe God's Word, is for God to get the glory through us. And we want everybody around us, literally, even people that try to sell us books, certainly those that are in our household, to know God. And to know His glory. So may it start by us seeing that the end is here. May we live for Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. We are glad to be here.
And we thank You that the Word still speaks to us. It's binding on our hearts, God. It teaches us. I'm challenged. I'm convicted today. God, that we would live for You. Oh God, help us to live with the end in mind that the end is here. Move in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.